it feels great to have, you know sing the victors in, in Columbus and our team uh, team really uh, earned it in every in every way. All right, one of the best days of the college football year is here officially. We're putting a bow on everything that was Rivalry Weekend. Of course, you heard Jim Harbaugh just a moment ago. It's always nice, you know, as you stabbed your opponent right in the back to twist the knife, right? It's like, goodness gracious, you just can't get enough of the constant jabs, the barbs. It never ends, especially when it involves Ohio State and Michigan. More on that game in a moment. But I will tell you this. If you watched our show on Friday, if you watched our show last week, you will probably find out that nothing about the game between Ohio State and Michigan surprised me. Nothing about the result surprised me. I'll explain here momentarily, but there's still so many other games that we need to get to, and it is Monday, November 28th. We have that. We have coaching carousel. We have college football playoff conversation. We have tables set for conference championship games. Y'all, today is one of the best days of the year for a reaction, and we're going to give it to you right here. We're going to hit the biggest games from the weekend. We're also going to tell you and tip our cap to a few teams that had impressive performances. A couple of coaches have coached their final game at their respective school, and a couple of schools have filled their coaching vacancies. All of that coming up here in just a moment. We'll start where we always start. That's with what happened on the weekend. Let's react to some of the games. Let's get to it. All right, we'll start, of course, in Columbus, Ohio. It's the biggest game of the weekend, number two versus number three. And I'm telling you, and this is not this victory lap moment. This is not this moment where we're going to say, I told you so. No, it's not. But what I'm trying to figure out, and I've, I've tried to figure it out really all season long. Remember, six, seven, eight weeks ago, we had Michigan at number one. All right. People were up in arms saying we're absurd. We're ridiculous. Well, the reason why is because they are a complete football team. And while they might not have the sizzle that other teams have, they have the steak and potatoes, man. And if you have the steak and potatoes, you're always going to eat a fulfilling meal. It's what we get when we watch the Michigan Wolverines. They knock off the Buckeyes. It was an incredible performance. The largest margin of victory for Michigan in Columbus since 1976, they had 530 yards of offense. So many people were sitting there saying, I don't know, Ohio State's defense is better. Ohio State's defense is improved. Jim Knowles is a godsend. He's been incredible. While I agree that Jim Knowles is terrific, he's phenomenal. I think he's a great defensive coordinator. I had yet to see the front seven of Ohio State play against a team that is capable of establishing the line of scrimmage the way Michigan has. Notre Dame was the closest thing to it. That was in week one. This is now week 12. It's a whole nother layer of challenge. And with the pressure of a potential Big Ten title berth on the line, and with the pressure of a college football playoff berth on the line, Ohio State was a team that imploded in like a dying star. Here's what concerns me most about Ohio State. This is not going to be just, hey, we're going to beat up Ohio State because I think they still have a very real chance of getting to the college football playoff. More on that here in a minute. But I really think with Ohio State, here's the issue. I think when they're punched, and I'm talking punched, and someone throws the first punch at them, I'm not sure they're great at responding to adversity. If you look at the game, look at just how things, and everything was great there in the first possession of the game. 
Why Michigan deferred? I'll never be able to answer that question. But Ohio State got the ball, went right down the field, no adversity whatsoever, manageable situations, stayed on schedule, touchdown Buckeyes strike up the fight song. The crowd's now into it. And then it's like, all right, hey, here we go. <laughs> you know, Michigan looked putrid in the first quarter. Just one rushing yard in the first quarter. Blake Corum couldn't go. Everyone's sitting there thinking this thing could get sideways in a hurry. But Michigan just continued to chip away. One hitch because of an all-out pressure that left the defender on an island. A missed tackle results in a touchdown. Then you have a great, great play call that set up a perfect matchup with Johnson, they motion a guy across. They get the corner to bump out with the motion as they snap it as they're starting to line in the stack formation. So you get one-on-one with the safety on a double move. Guess what? That's advantage Michigan every single time. People are saying it was a busting coverage. No, it wasn't. It was exactly what they wanted, and it was exactly what Ohio State does when you get cross-the-ball motion and you create a build a stack. So those two big plays made you realize quickly This is going to be a four-quarter fight. And then what I was most surprised by was how all the body blows that Michigan threw in the early part of the game. They just continued to take their toll, continued to take their toll, continued to take their toll, and then boom. In the fourth quarter, Donovan Edwards, a couple of really long runs that led to touchdowns that were touchdowns, 216 overall rushing yards in the game, and... 170 in the fourth quarter alone. That rushing performance was the best by a Wolverine against the Buckeyes since Tim Biaka Batuka back in 1995. He went for 300 and change. But 216 for Edwards when he was supposed to be the secondary back in the equation and how the running game was going to die if Blake Corum went out. Not the case. Edwards was terrific and the offensive line was terrific as well. If you look at just the fourth quarter performance alone, I mean, that's a that's a career maker. 170 and two touchdowns against Ohio State. Yeah, that's a career maker. You're now a legend, young man. Congratulations. Third best performance in the fourth quarter by an FBS running back this season. And to do so on the biggest possible stage, congratulations to the Michigan Wolverines. Just phenomenal. Where does Ohio State go from here? They need to take a good long look in the mirror. Last year, it was easy to pin it on the defense. It was easy to pin it on the defense. You say, hey, well, they they didn't play well. They didn't stop the run. They were not good. Let's make an adjustment. Let's put in Jim Knowles. That's not going to be as easy to sell this time around because you have a great coordinator, a universally respected coordinator. You have good personnel, but guess what? You still got gashed by a team that is more physical and a team that is more balanced and a team that is more complete. Ohio State's had woes running the football all year long. They plagued them here. If all you have to do against Ohio State is just get to the quarterback, hit C.J. Stroud a couple times, guess what? That's a pretty easy recipe for some teams to create. Yeah, not everybody has dudes that can rush the passer like Michigan, like Georgia, but we're talking about Ohio State here. The goal is to win the national championship. The goal is not to be 9-3, 10 10-2, 11-1 runners-up in the Big Ten East. The goal is to win a national championship. If they can't throw the football all over the yard, how do they beat you? I haven't seen them be able to earn tough yardage on the ground in a while. And I haven't seen them do it that often this year either. Yes, they can run it up on some folks. There's no doubt. And everything's going good. Guess what? Ohio State is a scary team to play. But the second they get punched, I don't know, man. 
I think it's a real problem. They need to identify some legitimate holes. CJ Stroud, guy's supposed to be a Heisman Trophy front runner, four of 12 for 81 yards and two interceptions on third down alone. And when he was pressured, he got pressured three times on those third downs. He was 0 for 3 with an interception. Only three pressures the whole game, he's 0 for 3. If all you got to do is bring pressure and hit C.J. Stroud and he gets affected that easily, that's a problem. Huge win for Michigan. Much congratulations for what they were able to accomplish. I think this is a more impressive victory than what they pulled off last year because last year you could point to the elements and, oh, it was snowing and, oh, it was on home and, oh, you had a senior class and, a, and an upperclassman class that was just anchored by great, great personnel. This was a team effort and it was a really impressive performance, especially in the final three quarters. Michigan will now potentially head in the conference championship Saturday with a number one next to their name. All right, moving on to another team that is in full control of their own destiny. It's the USC Trojans. I actually thought Notre Dame would be able to take it to USC. I thought they'd be more physical. I thought they could bloody USC's nose. And I thought they could disrupt the rhythm of the USC offense. I thought their keep-away style would play well in a game like this. And that was not the case. I was thoroughly impressed with what I saw from USC in this matchup. They continue to be problematic when it comes to turnovers for opposing teams. They continue to be incredible at quarterback. More on Caleb Williams here in just a minute. But what I was not expecting was a performance by Austin Jones that made me feel like Travis Dye was a thing of the past. Now, I love Travis Dye. Y'all know that. He's phenomenal. He is a great player. And I thought when he went out, man, this offense would become a little one-dimensional. It'd go almost exclusively through Caleb Williams. And Travis Dye's absence would really be felt in games like this. That wasn't the case because Austin Jones, the transfer, comes in a career-high 154 yards in the win. He gave 25 carries, 25 good carries to help fill that void tremendously. And that balance was exactly what they needed because if you look at what Caleb Williams does, throwing the football and the weapons they have on the perimeter, they're going to be a problem through the air for just about everybody. But if you can have that piece in the backfield that keeps the defense honest, that could potentially make all the difference. You factor in Williams' legs, it's a whole nother layer of challenge when it comes to slowing down this offense. I would say I would gush and wax poetic as long as I could about the SC offense, but I feel like we need to attribute a little more time to the USC defense. Right now, if you turn on any podcast in America, it doesn't matter if they cover college football or not. Everyone's talking about Caleb Williams, the performance, the Heisman, all this other stuff. Yeah, we'll get to that. I, I love Caleb Williams. I think he's a phenomenal player and we'll hit his Heisman candidacy in the days and weeks to come. But y'all, we need to talk because this is, an, this is always college football. This is a football-specific podcast, a college football-specific podcast. You know who doesn't get enough love is the USC defense. Now, don't get me wrong. I thought the pass defense left something to be desired. I mean, Drew Pine, for instance, they made him look like Joe Montana there in the first quarter of the football game. The guy was 15 of 15 there early on. He finished 23 of 26. Now, it wasn't. Flawless performance by any stretch of the matter, but I would like to see some of the coverage tighten up at least early on. But how about the performance against the run? Look, if there's, you knew that 
that SC came into this game saying, we're stopping the run. We're selling out against the run. If they get their yards to the air, fine. We'll make Drew Pine beat us, and we don't think he can. Well, they were right. It was a really impressive performance, really from start to finish, for USC defensively. They don't have crazy star power on the defensive side. All right, they don't have. They have a, a couple guys for sure. Gentry being back's big. Obviously, uh, Tui two, really, really good player. He's had a very, very productive season for him. But it's not like it's crazy across the board. Five star personnel that is just top tier status. In some places, actually, there's retreads from other Power Five institutions that have now found new life in Alex Grinch's system. Well, to hold Notre Dame to 90 rushing yards on 26 carries. Think about this. This is a Notre Dame team that came in averaging over 190 yards per game on the ground. To hold them, knowing that that was their strength, that was their bread and butter, that was their path to victory, was Notre Dame controlling the line of scrimmage, playing keep away, and running the football. USC wasn't going to have anything to do with that. 90 yards on the ground, phenomenal performance by the front seven defensively, of the USC Trojans. Incredible performance. They, of course, control their own destiny. Check back more later in the week. We'll talk about Caleb Williams and where he is in the Heisman stratosphere because it feels like it's all but secured, at least at this point of the season. All right, one of the longest win streaks in America against their rival came to an end on Saturday afternoon. That was when South Carolina goes into Clemson and knocks off the Clemson Tigers. Now, South Carolina, how about the two-week stretch they've been on? All right, back-to-back wins against AP top 10 opponents while being unranked. All right, that's the first time that's happened in the SEC since 2003. That was Auburn back in 2003, and it's the first time ever that South Carolina's pulled off such a feat. So how about Shane Beamer and the two-week stretch that they've been on been absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Just ridiculous to think of what this team was the first 10 games of the year to what they became in the final two games of the year. It makes you think what could have been, right? I mean, goodness gracious, just abysmal performances at times for the Gamecocks. And yet here they are playing their best football at the end of the year and getting two massive wins for Shane Beamer. The big plays continued to play a huge role for South Carolina. Spencer Rattler was great on the downfield passing attack. He carried that over from last week. That was something that was kind of missing in the game, missing in his game, at least early in the year. Well, he's gotten a little bit better in that regard. It's opened things up considerably for this Gamecocks offense. He was 6 of 8 on throws that traveled 20 yards downfield, 248 yards on such plays. So just massive. Averaging over 30 yards an attempt on those throws is significant. And that's not something you see every day from Clemson. Clemson is a really sound defense. They don't give up huge chunk yardage. That's just not who they are. Well, they did on Saturday. And they did so to a quarterback that has found a really hot hand the last couple of weeks. As far as quarterbacks are concerned, DJ Uyungle has a day that you would love to forget if you're a Clemson fan. It was really really not good. Just 28% completion. They continuously pressured him, flustered him, blitz packages that were a little unique, things that it looked like he at times was a little bit confused. He was just 3 of 18 
against the blitz, that is an abysmal percentage. I mean, really, really bad. When they're blitzing you and they're vacating a zone or they're bringing an extra defender, means there's more space to, to, to work. It's more space to find a guy. It's more space to find a matchup. DJ Uyunglele just couldn't do it on a consistent basis. Plus, in the second half, it didn't get better. I mean, it got worse in the second half. Just 3 of 16 in the second half for 13 yards and an interception. Uh, really just just wild. And they have a negative turnover margin now, Clemson does, in five consecutive games. Something has to be done offensively because they just have not found much of an identity at any point this year. Final takeaway in this game. We don't talk about special teams. We're not going to make a habit of talking about special teams. But Pete Lumbo, the special teams coordinator there at South Carolina, deserves real, real, real consideration for the Frank Broyles Award. Frank Burrell's award every year goes to the nation's top assistant coach. I've never, I'm a voter in the award. I think there's only a one or two media voters. I'm one of them. Uh, there might be a small handful of media voters. I don't know. I, all I know is I'm one of the voters. And I know it's not a giant pool of voters, okay? That's not like a, that's not like a, you know, a, a uh, not like, patting myself on the back or anything. All I know is that he will be under consideration for me when I put the three names down on the list that I think should be under consideration. Pete Lembo will be in the mix. You look at how many games that his special teams, how many plays his special teams unit have made this entire season. And they were in so many ways this past weekend, they were probably the difference maker in the game. You have a, a punter in Kai Kroger. Okay. We've never talked about a punter on the show before. Don't get used to it. It probably won't happen again. A punter had averaged over 50 yards a punt on seven kicks with an in, uh, just a ridiculous five of those seven being downed inside the 20-yard line, three being downed inside the five. That is absurd to consistently put pressure on the opposing offense and flipping the field even after your offense stalls out. Plus, you got Amari and Brown who took that short punt by Aiden Swanson. I mean, that was one of the most heads-up plays of the game. Josh Van gets hurt early in the game. You put in your backup return man, and all of a sudden, he takes advantage of a short punt, returns it all the way to the Clemson 26-yard line. I mean, they force turnovers. I mean, this is a group that has blocked kicks. They have done so much for this team all year long, and they were, I think, in so many ways the difference on Saturday in being able to pull off one of the bigger upsets of the weekend. All right, finally, we'll go out to the West Coast and hit on Oregon State, who took care of business against Oregon. Now, we took Oregon State in the game. Thought they'd do what they did, just didn't think it would take them 40 minutes to do it, okay? Their performance in the final 20 minutes of action. Now, remember, this is a team that was down 21 points with 446 remaining in the third quarter. If you look at the ESPN win probability meter at this point, talking about a 99% win probability for Oregon at that juncture, okay? I don't put a ton of stock in the analytics. It's not my thing. I don't do the, oh, not win probability game control. It's not my thing. I My eyes did the talking, and it felt to me like this thing was completely out of hand in favor of Oregon with about five minutes to play there in the third quarter. However, things flipped drastically. I mean, this was a collapse of epic proportion. You allow two quick touchdowns, all right? You fumble a punt snap at your own two. 
You get stuffed on fourth and one from your own 29. And of course, you have another fourth down stop inside the opponent's five where you roll the quarterback out who hasn't been a mobile threat whatsoever at any point in the last two weeks. Now, the most insane part about this game, when you're down 21 with five minutes left to play in the third quarter, what are you probably thinking as an offensive coordinator? You're probably thinking, all right, we got we to gotta throw away back into the game. Well, they resisted that temptation. And that, to me, is a testament to the culture and the identity that has been created by Jonathan Smith as an alumnus of the institution. He knows exactly who they are. He knows exactly what the recipe needs to be. And he knows exactly what the pathway is for his team to succeed on any given Saturday. Now, it was far from pretty. In many ways, it was hideous, okay? <laughs> not, trying to, not trying to put silver lining. A win is a win is a win. You don't have to draw a picture on the scorecard. This one was really bad in a lot of ways for Oregon State. You finish minus three in the turnover margin, and you throw for about 60 yards with a couple picks. The good news is when you're down 21 points in the third quarter, you think it becomes a throw-a-thon? Not the case. They stuck to who they were. 19 consecutive run plays run by the Oregon State Beavers. Even in a three-touchdown hole, 19 consecutive run plays were called. Do you realize that from the time that they got down three touchdowns, they did not throw the ball one time after that? They had 19 plays left in the game at that point. They didn't know, but 19 plays were called from that point where they were down three touchdowns to the end of the game. Every single one was a run play. Went for 143 yards and four touchdowns over their final five drives. Just ridiculous. And the holes were massive, I might add. According to the ESPN stats, 205 of their 270-so-odd rushing yards were before contact. That is... Amazing. And it's a testament to the offensive line and the poor defensive play from Oregon. It was a really bad performance down the stretch by the Ducks. The other thing that doomed Oregon in this game, fourth down attempts. Look, I understand you're going to be aggressive, Dan Lanning. And look, it works out. You're the hero. It doesn't work out. You're the woat, right? Like we don't use goat anymore because goat is now a positive. You're the woat, the worst of all time. Okay. So you look at this. And you look at where Dan Lanning is. He's had a great year, but there have been times where it's like, man, you scratch your head occasionally with just how much they've been willing to roll the dice. I mean, your own 29-yard line, fourth down conversions have been a huge part of why Oregon's at where they're at. They were a game away from getting to the Pac-12 championship. Came up obviously a little bit short, but they go 0 for 5 on fourth down. And I think what's really unfortunate is that if Bo Nix were healthy, would the outcome have been different in the last couple of weeks for Oregon? He just doesn't look the same. Now, we know that Bo Nix is still a gutsy player, and he played his tail off last week en route to the victory, but this was just too much. And you could tell that he just didn't have the same mobility and the same type of spark that he had throughout the course of that great win streak that they had a few weeks back. Just had negative five rushing yards on the day, which is, of course, not going to provide the the type of, I guess, fear in the opposing defensive coordinator 
if you know the quarterback is not a real run threat. So just hate that he has that bummed ankle and what might have looked like if things didn't go that way for him a couple weeks back. But this is about Oregon State. They managed the comeback. They had an incredible performance, and they now finish at 9-3 and three in the regular season. And a 10th win in the bowl game would give Oregon State and Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State alumni, the alumnus of Oregon State, it would give them their 10th, first 10-win season since 2006. So congrats to the Beavers. What an incredible year. Lions, Tigers, and tailgates. Oh, my. The college football season is always a great time of year. Besides the jerseys, the face paint, and the foam fingers, there's the food. And nothing gets you more fired up for game day than Eckrich smoked sausage. They're naturally hardwood smoked and have the perfect blend of spices. From buffalo sausage dip, sausage, chili, mac, and cheese, Eckridge Smoked Sausage is a quick way to bring flavor to all your tailgate meals. Visit Eckridge.com for easy, one-of-a-kind sausage recipes. Eckridge, you do you. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. All right, we do it every single Monday in an effort to try to get to a few different parts of the college football globe. So we go to some low-hanging fruit. Coops, kick it off. All right, first one here. Alabama does not have the resume to be in the college football playoff. Low-hanging fruit or truth? I think in a normal year, it's truth. But this is not a normal year. It's almost like we're arriving at four playoff teams by a potential process of elimination, right? Like LSU was primed and positioned to get to the college football playoff, and they stubbed their toe. You look at, I mean, obviously USC, this thing, we're, we're going to spend so much time agonizing over what the order is between Alabama, Ohio State, and Tennessee. I mean, those are really the three teams that are going to that have a legitimate argument, I guess, to be made in favor of getting in if, for whatever reason, Utah beats USC in the Pac-12 championship game. I, for one, think the top three are in. Regardless of the outcome this weekend, they are in. So I look at this. Alabama right now, not their fault. Their best wins against an eight and four football team. That team is Texas. Okay. They have looked really good at times. I thought they looked great in the Iron Bowl. But I also think there have been times where they haven't looked as good. And I thought, frankly, the Iron Bowl was maybe one of their best performances of the season. Uh, defensively, certainly left something to be desired. Didn't do a great job against the run. Thought they would. Didn't. But ultimately, when you look at Alabama, they're one of those teams that the more chances you give them, the more likely they are to figure it out. And I think if you put them in the playoff, they would have a chance to be potentially very dangerous. But at this point, can you justify a two-loss team whose best win is against an 8-4 and four over a one-loss team in Ohio State, even though they got blown out, their best win is against Penn State, who's much better than that of the best win that Alabama has in Texas. So I think it's going to be really interesting. I've always been one that number of losses should matter more than margin of defeat. 
that's always been my my stamp. I've always said, no matter what the circumstances are, the one lost team should be in over the two lost team if the opportunity presents itself. If you slip up one time, I can excuse that because you might it might change your locker room and you might be better down the stretch as a result of that slip up. If you get got once and then still get got again, that to me is a sign of bigger issues. So I, I think Alabama's resume in a normal year does not warrant playoff consideration. But this year, with the obvious flaws of some of the other candidates, Ohio State just got boat raced in their own backyard and Tennessee, who I thought was egregiously underrated last week. They put them at 10. That to me was absurd. It, uh, to me, I thought it was absolutely absurd. I mean, Tennessee does have some really nice wins. Now, one of their wins just took a significant hit in LSU, but they still have a win head-to-head against Alabama. You can say, well, it wasn't convinced. All these, that's fine, but they still won the game. I know they got boat raced by South Carolina, but now South Carolina is probably going to be in the top 25. And if they're not, they should be. I mean, after all, Louisville was ranked last week. So South Carolina, if you're going to justify Louisville being ranked in the top 25, how can you possibly exclude South Carolina? They might be as high as 20. Now that loss doesn't look quite as bad. And you look at the fact that they also lost to Georgia. No one's played Georgia that well in a couple of years, at least good opponents. So I, I think that Tennessee still should be in the mix. But ultimately, I'd be really surprised if either SEC team overtook Ohio State if, for whatever reason, USC comes up short this weekend in the Pac-12 championship game. All right, next one, and you alluded to it. LSU's collapse on Saturday night is what makes college football the best and the most frustrating sport. Low-hanging fruit or truth? (laughs) Uh, Truth. Um, the best part about college football is you really don't know what you're going to get. I mean, you really don't. And, and we all do the best we can. I mean, there are so many platforms and there are so many good people in this industry that cover the sport the right way, that really just celebrate the sport and love it. Just like you guys that are watching, like, I just love the sport. I, I mean, it's just, it's a passion for me. Like, I just, it's, I love what I do. I'm very, very lucky uh, to cover the sport that I care so deeply about. But so many of you guys have the same level and interest and passion that I do. Um, I just want to see the sport succeed and and be enjoyed. And I want the next generation to enjoy it as much as I enjoyed it. And I, you know, I want my sons to enjoy it as much as I enjoy it and all these other things. But there is nothing more infuriating about watching your team implode against a team that for the most part all year has stunk. Like I remember the feeling as a player. Like sometimes it's just not your day. You know what I mean? Like there's just sometimes you can just tell, all right, the ball's not bouncing our way today, y'all. I mean, it's just it is what it like. Hey, like you can just tell it's just one of those days had the same experiences in the NFL. Like if you go back and watch the game against the Patriots in 2012, it was the butt fumble game. If you will, the jets Patriots, like that was one of those days where everything that could go wrong did. That was what happened with LSU last night. And what was probably most infuriating 
I wouldn't be as mad if I were LSU. Uh, to be honest with you, like if I'm LSU in that circumstance, I'm sitting there thinking, "Hey, man, we're still going to the SEC championship game. We're still playing with house money. It's year one under Brian Kelly. The likelihood of us pulling off the upset next week and getting to the college football playoff is pretty slim. So, man, we beat Bama in year one. We, uh." Uh, we're going. We're SEC West champs. Like life is good on the Bayou right now. Life is really good because a lot of people, self included, think this might be Brian Kelly's worst team. Okay, he's in good position to have a nice, long, successful tenure at LSU. The most frustrating part, I think, about college football are the results that you get if you're a Texas A&M fan last night. That, to me, is the most irritating result in the world because you see glimpses at times this year of Texas a and being like, all right, pretty good. Go and play against Alabama in their house. Give them all they want. Pretty good. Have some good performances occasionally, never for four quarters, but occasionally play pretty well on defense, right? Like There were moments this year where it's like, all right, and against Florida – especially early on, like moving the football. All right, hey, this this offense has a little life. Like there are things that you look at with AM and you're like, all right, they got some pieces. They got some things that you can build around. And there are other times that you're left watching them. It's like, ugh, like wh- what are they doing? I mean, the the Auburn game comes to, comes to mind. The Appalachian State game comes to mind. Shoot, even parts of the UMass game last week, it's like, what is this? And then you watch it last night, and you just can't help but wonder, what if Devon A. Chain had been healthy all year? What if Anaya Smith hadn't gotten hurt? What if they hadn't had some attrition uh, at several spots on their roster? And you wonder, just what if they had played a consistent four-quarter football game against quality competition earlier in the year? Like five and seven is the absolute worst it could possibly get for AM this year. I think. I mean, you look at it, they beat Arkansas and they beat LSU, both of which the game flipped in an instant. And as soon as the fumbles were returned to the house by Damani Richardson, ironically, in both games, as soon as the fumbles were returned to the house, it was as if the team finally was like, we believe. And then they played great in those two games, but those were about the only two games in which you got decent performance, like wall-to-wall decent performance. I I think that's what makes college football so great is that teams like A&M make you want to pull your hair out, but at the same time, you can also be so excited and rush the field after a victory. You know what I mean? So I think it's an incredible sport. Uh, And I think Aggies... Uh, last night showed there is some heart. There is not fracturing in the locker room. There is there are some things that are potentially looking up for the Aggies, even after what was arguably the most disappointing season in college football this year. All right, last one here. Outside of the Pac-12, conference championship games don't matter this coming weekend. Low-hanging fruit or truth? <laughs> uh Low-hanging fruit, conference championship games always matter. Why? Because nobody gets a ring for being a conference championship runner-up. 
Nobody gets a ring for being a division champ. Well, maybe they do. In today's day and age, they probably do, if I'm going to be completely honest. But that's conversation for a different day. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now. The participation trophies are endless, and glad that all y'all participate and get rewarded for it. All right. But that's not, not here to discuss all that right now. I'm still ticked off that my three year old son's soccer team doesn't keep score. All right. So I'm, I, maybe I'm the messed up one, but I digress. Okay. Here is where I'm at right now when I look at the conference championship games. Yes, the Pac-12 is of the utmost importance. Okay? It's of the utmost importance. There's no denying that. All right? But do you realize that if TCU is victorious against a red-hot Kansas State... I don't need to tell you, by the way, why the Pac-12 is important. Okay? you Surely you can figure that out. All right? Utah wins. They go to the Rose Bowl. That's great outcome. SC wins. They go to the playoff. All right? Bada bing, bada boom. Easy enough. The Big 12, also extremely important. You're going to say, well, TCU's likely in regardless. Yeah, but you realize that TCU right now is 9-0. That's pretty dang impressive. That is you know, just the second time a team has finished 9-0 record since the Big 12 adopted the round-robin format. So to go 10-0, I mean, we're talking about a historically great Big 12 football team in TCU as far as records concerned. Now, there might be, like, for instance, Oklahoma in 2017. Would I pick them to beat TCU this year? Yes, I would. But still, TCU is on the verge of history and winning a Big 12 championship, man. That is significant. ACC championship? Ah. <laughs> Not that important, <laughs> going to be completely honest. Not that important. Why? Because Clemson gets to hang another banner? Great. But if UNC wins, first ACC title in Mac Brown's return, great bounce back from a year ago, but it does leave you kind of wanting more after they've lost the last two games. I mean, losing to Georgia Tech, losing to their rival, I mean, be a one way to, one way to salvage what was at one point a very promising season. Big Ten Championship, don't get me started with that. I'm thrilled for Purdue, though. I'll say that. I mean, what a cool moment now. You know, Jeff Brom leading this program to their first ever Big Ten Championship game. They'll obviously be a massive underdog <laughs> to, to Michigan. I saw some look-ahead forecast looking like 18 points or so as a dog, but still pretty impressive to to think that they're playing in their first Big Ten championship since Drew Brees' senior year of 2000. So big opportunity for Purdue. So I think it matters a lot more for them than it does for Michigan, but I digress. Uh, you look at some of the other conference championship games, the SEC. Can Brian Kelly get it done? Probably not, but still interesting. But here's one that really matters. All right. I know the group of five, we'll get into all these games, by the way. We have 10 games. We'll break them all down throughout the course of the week. But how about the possibility of Tulane punching their ticket to the New Year's Six? Now, it's been one of the more remarkable seasons in the college football world. All right. You have the Green Wave knocking off Cincinnati at home on Friday. That ended Cincinnati's 32-game home winning streak. And now they're going to host UCF in the AAC title game. Of course, that's going to be in New Orleans. Remember, UCF 
Uh, UCF beat Tulane earlier this year, but if they can win it, they'll obviously get a trip to the New Year's Six, likely the Cotton Bowl. That'll be the first major bowl appearance for Tulane since the 1940 Sugar Bowl. Think about that. 1940 Sugar Bowl was the last time Tulane played in a massive bowl game. And think about this. That was two decades before Tulane left the SEC. So never this version of Tulane has never played in a bowl game quite like what's on the line in victory this upcoming weekend. And how about the love opportunity that we have to give for Willie Fritz? I love Willie Fritz. Why he's not a candidate at some of these job openings to me is beyond me. I know he's a candidate at a couple places, uh, but man, he's a phenomenal coach. The guy's done it at so many different levels. Obviously, was at Sam Houston State for a while, couple FCS championship game appearances. But man, to take Tulane to a bowl game in his 26th year as a head coach like this would be significant, of course, if he could pull it off against Gus Malzahn and the UCF Knights on Saturday. Do you have ambitious hiring goals for the last quarter of 2022? With a powerful hiring partner, big goals are no big deal. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed makes hiring all in one place so easy because it takes 10 minutes or less for most small business employers to post a job, according to Indeed Data US. Indeed also has a jaw-dropping pool of talent. In fact, three out of four U.S. online job seekers search for jobs on Indeed each month, according to Comstore. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at Indeed.com slash always. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 offer. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships. Your skills, your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. All right, some final thoughts here as we put a bow on the show here, November 28th. I, I just want you to know, um, you're probably sitting here thinking like, what about coaching hires? What about carousel? Well, this is our standalone episode. So you're going to have to check back. Like We're going to do individual videos for just about every coaching hire. And we're going to do individual videos on reaction. We're going to do individual videos on speculation and potential job openings. For instance, if a coach, say, leaves from, I don't know, Cincinnati and takes Wisconsin, we'll probably do a video on both Wisconsin and on Cincinnati. So you just need to stay locked in here on Always College Football. But a couple things that we need to hit, news and notes as it, as it pertains to the coaching carousel here 
as far as when we're recording this, <laughs> which is you know, somewhere on Sunday, I'll tell you that. All right. Uh, can't give you all the trade secrets here. But David Shaw decided to abruptly resign as the head coach of the Stanford Cardinal at about 3.30 Eastern time on Sunday morning. Now, I don't think they were ever going to fire David Shaw. Okay, He was the all-time winningest coach in Stanford's program history. But in the last four years, he's 14 and 28. I mean, things had gotten stale. And as Shaw said himself, quote, it was time. Uh, now, he's obviously spoken publicly, and this will be something we can maybe talk about down the road, spoken publicly about Stanford and their willingness or lack thereof to adjust to the modern era of college football where they can be involved in the portal and the NIL and the reluctance that exists right now. But uh, I think he's leaving because he knows things could potentially get worse for Stanford down the road if they don't adapt and adapt quickly to where college football is at. Willie Taggart is also out as the head coach of Florida Atlantic. Probably saying, man, it's been quick for Willie Taggart. Yeah, well, it's been a quick downward spiral, just 17 and 18 in his time there in Boca Raton. Remember, Lane Kiffin was the head coach at FAU prior to Willie Taggart taking over. He had won 11 games, not once, but twice en route to multiple conference championships. So I think Lane Kiffin obviously set a standard there at FAU that Willie Taggart just couldn't live up to. And now they'll be looking for a new head coach as well. And by the way, they're not the only one. Every single one of these Conference USA programs that is moving to the American Athletic Conference a lot of them have kind of took, done a deep dive into their coaching situation and they're trying to evaluate best case scenario. This is the third, the third Conference USA program of the six that decided to make a coaching change prior to the move to the new league. So understand that Willie Taggart didn't appear to be going in the right direction. So they felt like it was time to make a move. Now, Moving over to some of the hirings that have gone down. Matt Rule is the next man up at Nebraska. Check the videos in the bio. We'll put a link. Check our social media at AlwaysCFB. That's on Instagram and on Twitter. We will do a comprehensive breakdown of that hire. What a great, great hire for Nebraska. Just phenomenal. Uh, and I'll explain why in detail in a video that is exclusive to Nebraska fans. You don't have to. I mean, if you don't like Nebraska, you can watch it too. But you might, if you have an opinion on Nebraska or Nebraska football, or maybe you just love historically tradition-rich programs, maybe, that's, maybe that'll interest you. So check it out. We'll also do a video for Kenny Dillingham, who's going to be the head coach of the Arizona State Sun Devils. At 32 years old, he officially makes everybody in my line of work now feel old, including me, who sits at the ripe old age of 34. So Kenny Dillingham, the OC at Oregon, takes over at his alma mater and is now going to be the next head coach at Arizona State. Check the link in the bio. We'll talk about Kenny Dillingham, the fit, and why he might finally be the next. And I feel like there's been like seven or eight coaches that have tried to awake the sleeping giant that is Arizona State. Maybe Kenny Dillingham has the right recipe to be able to create a power there in the desert. It does feel like things are moving in the right direction in Tucson. So maybe he can do what needs to be done at Arizona State to make sure that they can take off 
as well. Like I said, check those videos out on Matt Rule. Check those videos out on Arizona State and Kenny Dillingham. And then, of course, keep it locked in here on ESPN's College Football YouTube channel, Always College Football. Make sure you come and check in with us periodically because we're going to be pushing videos out as soon as we get concrete news about some of these head coaching vacancies. We have also heard speculation like you have about Luke Fickle going to Wisconsin from Cincinnati. We'll update you accordingly as of right now, as of when we're taping this right now. Yes, this instant, that is only speculation. Nothing concrete. Check back in with us here in an hour or two. We might have something to come out on that potential move as well. For all of us here at Always College Football, it's a fun time of year to do the podcast. Keep it locked in here on ESPN's YouTube channel. We appreciate you coming to us via the podcast as well. Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out as well. We have a huge week in store for you. We're going to preview conference championship games, talk a little Heisman. We're going to, of course, talk college football playoff conversation. How could you not? Especially with probably the most anticipated college football playoff ranking show in recent memory, which will be coming to us on Tuesday nights. We'll react to that. We'll preview that and do all the fun things between now and then that we need to do to make sure you have your cup full heading into conference championship Saturday. For all of us here at Always College Football, Jack Foster and Mark Kubiak, I'm Greg McElroy. We hope you have a wonderful day. Keep it locked in here on Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.